0: in uh, first corinthians tonight and uh, first corinthians 11 and i was telling some of you out in the foyer that um, this morning we we worked out of revelation 18 uh, which is all the laments about the fall of the woman the fall of babylon that was that was an interesting text and then tonight I get 1 Corinthians 11, which is another very interesting text. Today I could have just used one that was sh- just easy, you know, straight shot, right over the plate, nothing fancy. But this is what we're going to get. Still, we're going uh, to take a, a quick survey of the first half of chapter 11. Because some of this is going to come back when we get over to chapter 14. Uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14... Uh, Paul is addressing some of the concerns that they have and there's, there's a group of concerns that he's aware of that they've addressed to him. It may have come in the letter that was sent to him and it has to do with um, how they are conducting themselves in their worship together. And uh, he will have both uh, things that he'll commend them on and then he'll have things that he'll criticize them on. Um, the principle is going to be found in chapter 13, where he talks about love. And he says that there are some other considerations that they need to keep in mind. And it seems like what's happening to the, uh, to the Corinthians is that they keep drifting to extremes one way or the other. And they're, they're not tempering it with other considerations. And instead of thinking about one another and even the, the culture around them and those who are around them, they keep getting centered in on their own unique experience. Um, we're we're going to flesh that out more as we go through these chapters ahead. Um, but let's take, a, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 11. We'll start in verse 2. He says, and here's, here's what he's going to commend them. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head Now, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. Now, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, I don't think we can expand on that. That's pretty straightforward. And next week, I expect all the women to be wearing hats, okay? So, we're good. When I went to Scotland in uh, 87, I had uh, some of the friends that I met over there. They said that there was a... um, a very conservative church uh, in one of the cities um, over the way up north. It was uh, in the city of Dunfermline, and they they talked about going there, and they said, well, we went there because it's her family church, and then kindly one of their leaders came up to us and said, now look, we're letting you away with it this time because you're guests, but in the future when you show up, make sure that your women have head coverings on. And they were serious about it. Uh, To them, that was the proper interpretation and application of this verse. This section uh, of text has always interested me. uh, And it seems like we get hung up in a lot of the details. That this has everything to do with either head coverings or hairstyles. When I was doing research on this years ago, uh, what was really interesting was to find... Writers uh, on this text in the 1920s, and that's when uh, bobbed hairstyles for women uh, became pretty popular. Oh, and you should have seen these guys rail on that. You know, oh, these women with the bobbed hairstyles trying to be men, and on and on it went, and you know that they needed to have long, long hair. Um, and and this was their text to prove that. So, so is this is this verse? Is this section here? Is this about? head coverings? Is it about hairstyles? Is it about worship? What what, what exactly is it about? Is it about, you know, is it about men and women? Is it about roles in marriage? Or is it about roles in worship? Uh, Probably not all of those, maybe a few of the others, but surely Paul's coming to a larger point, isn't he? I, I think he is. Now, we have to admit some things getting into a text like this. One is Paul knows what the concerns are in Corinth. He's read their letter. He's received their correspondence. He knows what's going on. So he can address this without having to go over it again for them because they also know what it is. I always love it when you listen to radio shows and they say, uh, let me review this for our listeners who may have just come in late. It's too bad the Bible doesn't do that more often. But that's nonsensical because this is a correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. And we can't, he he has no point in reviewing it for those of us who are going to come later. So we have to make some educated guesses. And there are just, and, and one of the best things we can do is be humble and say, look, there's just some things we are not going to know. We are not going to know exactly what was going on there. But again, we can make some educated guesses. One of the things that we can uh, guess is that uh, there, are, there are gender distinctions in that culture. Uh, that there are men and there are women. And so things are expected of each of them. Most cultures in the world throughout history have had certain gender distinctions between men and women. And, and the culture embraces some of that, that. That men wear these kind of clothes, women wear these kind of clothes... Uh, I know now we can, we can sit here in 2017 and say, oh, it's all breaking down. We don't even know anymore. Uh, okay, well that's fine. We'll get that out of our system and lament. But that, that, that's, that's a small slice of human experience right now. Let's just focus on what we know and what we have known throughout history, that most cultures embrace the idea that there are d- differences in the culture for men and differences in the culture for women. Now, there are also natural differences. The bodies are not exactly the same. They don't work exactly the same way. And you actually have philosophers at the time of Paul talking about this. Uh, One philosopher says, you know, uh, look at at the the tiny little hairs on a man's face. I mean, he grows hairs, and, and, and that doesn't happen with a woman. And so God and nature has given that little distinction, so let's respect it. All right, and 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 the philosopher may have been making a case that you know men shouldn't shave their beards. In some cultures, that's not the thing to do. A man's not supposed to shave his beard. And, and by the, so so by the way, anybody who wants to say, well, see, all of the restrictions are on women. No, not necessarily. I mean, there are expectations of men as well. Uh, here, Paul suggests that uh, it's a shame for a man to have long hair, but that's not so in every culture, is it? No. Um, but they would have understood it that way, whatever their customs were. I don't think Paul is arguing for those cultural distinctions in the church, but he's using those cultural distinctions that they would be familiar with to make his point that there ought to be some recognition or respect of the differences. Okay, So Paul's not arguing for a particular set of cultural customs. Instead, he's using those customs to suggest, he's making an argument that says, look, doesn't nature teach you this? Yes. Okay. Doesn't your culture teach you this? Well, yes. So he's going to make the point, then let's respect it. And by the way, he has one other argument in that line too, which is very unfamiliar to us the angels okay let's go back over this and look at this a little bit uh he starts out in verse three and verse three seems to be the, the the core of this i want you to understand that the head of every man is christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is god now this is not paul's um caveman manifesto here okay man's head of the woman woman ought to stay at home that's the end of it you know blah 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 you yeah. know Okay, that, that's ridiculous. Anybody who uses that as their proof text uh, to subjugate women to some second-class role is not reading this. Paul is describing a, a um, kind of a, a construction of the universe and of relationships. Okay, so the man's ahead of the woman. They would have understood. They would have said, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, that wouldn't have been a big surprise for them. They don't have to be, they don't have to be educated on that. They would have accepted that. And Christ, or or, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. It is interesting, though, that he starts with that. That Christ becomes the head of man, man is the head of woman, and so there is, everybody's connected somehow to Christ. And later on, he'll say that uh, all things, this is in verse 12, all things are from God. In fact, let's just jump over there, and and since we can do this, we can move. We're not reading it right now. Let's take advantage of this. Notice that in 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So in verse 3, and there in verse 12, he's put his parentheses on there that says, guess what? We are men and women because that's the way God wants us to be, and that's the way God needs us. And that's the way we need one another. Now, he's obviously bringing into this the creation story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And um, Adam is incomplete without woman. And so, the, and so as the story goes, he, he's, he's made Adam, and he's saying, Adam, you... Um, you need need a friend, you need need a companion, you need need someone to complete your existence on earth. And so he sets up a little animal parade, and all the little animals come by. And, uh, And we think, you know, I always thought, well, this is sweet, you know, Adam gets to name them, you know, just like a kid getting to name his pets. What do you want to call that, Adam? I'll call that i uh, I'll call that a long-necked leopard and God's like oh, why don't you call it a giraffe and okay giraffe that's a better word you know and what are you going to call that thing you know I'm going to call that thing a, a long snout how about an elephant elephant but good name so Adam gets to name all these animals and we think oh isn't that great but at the same time what he's asking is he's saying Adam do you want to call any of those your best friend Do you want to call any of those your companion for life and Adam is great at coming up with names but he's like hey I really like them, but not that much, and uh, you know, and so he says, the dog is really nice. I like the dog, but no, no. I mean, you know, there's got to be limits here, and so, so God says, well, then I'm going to have to special create. I'm going to have to special create another human being here, and so as the story goes, we know that he takes the rib from Adam and forms a woman out of that rib, and I do think that there is some important symbolism to that. I mean, of all the the, the bones of the body that he's going to make woman out of, why a rib? Because it's from the side. There's a complementary relationship there with that, not from the head to rule over him, not from the foot so that he would rule over her. This is an old... Uh, parable, but from the side so that they would be together. And then you get God's declarations over this. He says, uh, Genesis 1 says, He created them male and female in his image. And Adam said, This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So there is this complementary nature of the two genders, of male and female. And, and, and it's affirmed and it's part of the good creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So male and female is not, and too often we look at it as a problem. It's not a problem. It's only, it only becomes a problem because of our fallen nature in this world and because of the corruption that's entered into the world because of sin and either our attempts to um, lower and denigrate one of the genders and historically over time, that I mean, there's no other way to look at it. It's been mostly women that have been denigrated and of course maybe some of that is changing now in some places and uh, men are even becoming kind of useless and uh, you know genetically even now they're trying to say that men are useless and so hey that's great you know we're I'm obsolete and uh, and so either way though is to ignore the goodness of creation that God has made and I'm thinking that Paul is certainly drawing them back to that To say, now look, in these relationships, God wants things to be a certain way. He doesn't want you to ignore that fundamental goodness of man and woman. And then in verse 12, he says, isn't it interesting? Woman comes about because of man, that God creates woman from man. But then man depends on woman to give birth and to create man. So this difference is actually part of the balance of creation that makes it so good. And when you look at the way that God created in Genesis, and by the way, it's, it's always important when you're reading Paul to know your Genesis. Things have boundaries. We start out with a world that's kind of a mess. It's, it has no form. It has no shape. Everything's void and, and, and dark and chaotic and so god starts saying you know like a director of an orchestra he starts saying this is going to be this and this is going to be this and he's going to separate light from darkness and the light will be day and the darkness will be night now he gives them names and so you're going to have day and night and that's a good thing and he says and we're going to have lights in the sky and those are going to boundary and set off seasons and days and times and that's going to now we're bringing order into it Order starts coming in. He says, Okay, we're gonna have uh, water in the sky we're gonna have water over the earth. And this starts to bug us with our scientific worldview. We're like, wait, is there water in the sky? You know, there's just space out there. No well, you know, there's clouds, but don't don't worry about that. The point is there's something up above, there's something down below. There's a sky and there's the earth. And so everything's getting very ordered. We're going from that chaotic mess now to this ordered thing. We've got sea. We've got land. You've got creatures that live in each environment. And he makes them just so. And then finally caps it all off. And guess what we have? We have man and woman. And when you have man and woman, then he can say, be fruitful and multiply. You can't say that if you've just got Adam. All he can say is, um, well, have a good day, you know, see you later, get some work done, you know, but now he can create man and woman, and, and, and all of this balance is good, it's good, it works, so Paul is going back to that idea of order here, when he's talking about, you know, there's, there's, there's Christ that's the head of every man, there's man that's the head over the woman in the, in the family relationship, and by the way, the words that are used there are, are meant, more, they, they they indicate the husband and wife relationship uh th- this in no way is is meant to suggest that um anyone with y chromosome outranks someone with two x chromosomes that's not what's not what that men outrank women automatically okay um th- that's not what he's saying uh which is always why it was a little bit difficult to me when I was growing up because there I was, I'd been baptized at 13, and there were a lot of uh, older, more mature women who could teach me things, and some of them were like, well, I don't know if I can teach. Why? Because he's baptized. I'm like, I have no authority over you. I mean, I knew that at 13, 14, and it wasn't disrespectful. It was, it was the idea that, look, we're entrusted. I mean, you know, my mother wasn't going to buy that argument, you know. Well, I, I don't care if you are baptized male. I'll... I'll tan your backside if I have to you know I don't outrank her this wasn't some bar mitzvah moment so we got to use common sense on some of this but there is that relationship there in a family where there's a certain order to the family and they would get it they would understand it the problem in Corinth seems to be (laughs) that they're writing their own rules that no one else understands notice what he says about uh, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, remember that in chapter 7, they've got some funny ideas about marriage. In chapter 7, they're thinking, well, okay, since we're all now sanctified in Christ, um, our ordinary male-female husband-wife relationships don't really matter anymore. In fact, since I'm a believer and my wife is not, I'll just leave her behind And I'll deny uh, marriage and gender and all of that. And Paul says, you're taking it too far. He goes, you're not called to be a citizen of heaven, a citizen of the future world that's coming in. You're not called to that so that you can disrupt society. You're not called to that so that you can um, upend everything. You're called to that and you're also called to live at peace. Now, he says, if the situation is such that your unbelieving spouse leaves you, then you have nothing to do with that. That, That's that's not on you. That's on them. But he says, but if, if, if you've become a believer and your unbelieving spouse is content to live with you, then stay with them. So what seems to be happening here is that we have a problem with with women praying or prophesying and their heads are uncovered and notice that at this point uh, you know he he could he could trump it all and say well listen I, i can put an end to that how about the women just don't pray and prophesy at all then it won't matter if their heads are covered or uncovered now why doesn't he do that we'll look at that more when we get over to chapter 14 because there it seems to be that he says hey let's just keep them quiet and then we don't have any problems all right you know uh no because here he had the opportunity to say let's just not have any of that first of all there's nothing that indicates that this is necessarily a worship setting the way we think of a worship setting but obviously there are women with gifts of prayer and prophecy and they're using that gift in some way now in their culture, one of the things that we can pick up—this is one of those educated guesses—is that um, in the Corinthian culture, you would have had priestesses or oracles who would have gone into an ecstatic sort of a trance, and, and when they would, they would, they would, uh, you know, take. Their hair apart, I guess they, you know, they they, they wore it up and, and bound it up and everything, and boy, the hair just starts flinging everywhere and everything, you know, and of course that's going to be really dramatic, you know, it's going to just be wild and uh, they're they're going to be, you know, they're going to be in the trance, they're going to be, and and by the way, this may have something to do with the tongue speaking that comes up in twelve, and and it's this idea of being in an ecstatic state that you are in touch with the gods and the spirits. Uh, I mean, anything you can do to bring about that kind of drama will uh, be good. The uh, it's interesting too. This stuff is not so ancient. If you read the uh, accounts of the Cane Ridge revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, which is uh, you had Barton Stone there. Uh, there's our our roots in Churches of Christ go to that. Um, there were people who got into the spirit at that 1801 revival. And uh, some of the accounts said that the women were, were taking their hair loose and they, were, and, and they were whipping their hair just like a buggy whip. I mean, it was cracking the air. It was, they were, they were, they, and, and they called it the spiritual jerks. That's what I love. They, they came down with a case of the jerks. And, uh, and it's, it's really funny when you read some of this, too, and all the things. And they had fellows that were out there barking and, and stuff like that. Um, well... And, of course, there's all kinds of, of interesting accounts of that event. Um, uh, one fellow, being a bit of a critic, said, uh, you know, he goes, oh, well, he goes, I don't know. He goes, there may have been uh, uh, more souls conceived than saved at the Cane Ridge revival, meaning that, uh, you know, people got a little crazy. But there might have been something flowing other than the spirit. And, 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 but then again, there's also accounts that say that there was something genuine there. You read some of the accounts, and they said, you know, okay, yeah, all the barking and the jerking and the climbing the trees and snapping their hair. We can do without that, but they did talk about those who would sing, and they would sing with a, with a sound and with a beauty that came from deep within their heart, and, and it was hard for them to describe, but they said that was truly of God. Well, okay, things happen in worship that, that can't always be explained. Uh, Paul is not trying to kill any of that he doesn't want to say hey let's just tone down the praying and prophesying what's the point praying and prophesying is good and he'll come back later in the in the next in the upcoming chapters and he'll say it's good it's good but he will ask for a little bit of dignity and the dignity or the respect is that we're not going to look like those pagans that do that that that's not necessary and he's not just worried about appearances because there must be a real problem. Otherwise, why is he getting the, the letter? For whatever reason, in their, in their cultural situation, the women uncovering their heads or loosing their hair is somehow disrespectful to their, to their husbands. There's something about it that shows a certain kind of respect now, if the Corinthians had gone too far with a lot of their distinctions about male and female and husband and wife, as they seem to be doing in chapter seven then it's it 's a pretty good guess that they 're also carrying that over in their assemblies or in their time together or in whatever whenever they gather together and there 's some prayer or somebody has a prophecy that they are exercising this freedom, but they're exercising this freedom to the extent that it's becoming rather uncomfortable for people. Uh, and, and not just uncomfortable because they don't like it. We've already talked about that. But it's uncomfortable in some way because it starts to break some of those norms and it becomes disruptive. Um, there's a whole collection. Let I me mean, let me let me bring and we're, again. We're kind of maybe we're sort of saying I, I don't I still don't get the problem. What's the problem? Well, we have our self evident situ you know conditions things that just ought to be. And again, I know things are changing a little bit, but unless you're you're in in in, in Scotland, uh, you know men are not supposed to wear dresses, okay? And uh, and in Scotland they don't wear dresses; they wear kilts, and that's very different. Um. Uh, and I confess, I've worn a kilt, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it, that's not, that's different. And that's formal attire. But if I wore a kilt on Sunday morning, you, you'd, you'd probably not like that. I don't think I'd like that. And uh, it just, okay, that, that's just something not right. To say nothing of wearing a dress, oh my goodness. I mean, what, you know, you'd be thinking, what is this, the Milton Burl show? I mean, you know, are our, our, uh, you know, our preachers showing up? Now, that's a date. I thought y'all would certainly get the Milton Berle reference. I can't use that when I'm teaching the 20s or 30s, but, you know, um, yeah. So we, we understand those things. And there's a whole set of stories among preachers when we trade tales about stories of men coming to church wearing dresses. It really happens. And um I can't tell any of those right now, but the uh but it, it really does happen, and when it does everybody's just it's like, well okay, it's weird, but what do we what do we do with this? This may be what's happening in Corinth. it might be something along those lines it's like you know this, this just doesn't seem right. um nobody's being harmed, but what exactly is going on here so Paul is saying, look, your freedom and your 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 distinctions need to be." affirmed but that doesn't mean that there's somehow some sort of inequality now one of the things they may have learned from Paul and notice he commends them I commend you you remember me in everything in other words you remember the things I've taught you you maintain the traditions as I pass them on to you in other words you're practicing this one of those could have been because he wrote this in Galatians That in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female, Greek or Jew, slave or free. That in Christ Jesus, the distinctions that the world thinks are so important, and important for all the wrong reasons, he says that in Christ Jesus, those don't matter anymore. What's more important than being one of those categories, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, what's more important is being in Christ. Okay. Now, he taught that. But what if they're taking that teaching and they're going a little too far with it and saying, Oh, well, then if that's the case, then the men can wear dresses and and women can let their hair loose. And, well, why not? Mm, Put the brakes on, folks. He says, I think you've missed the point. He says, because as much as that's true in Christ, at the same time, creation says something about this relationship. And you want to honor that, too. Now, Paul finds himself in a precarious situation here because he, he, he doesn't want them to go too far in one direction, but he doesn't want them to back up and go too far in the other direction. He doesn't want them to be legalistic, but he doesn't want them to be so um, libertine that they, go, that they go so far out that they, that they lose all distinctions. And so what Paul is arguing for here is that there's a difference between equality in Christ. He says, that's good, that's true. He said, in Christ Jesus men and women are both important and one of the things we need to do and and by the way you know I know that this is one of the hot topics of the day and it has been for my whole career in ministry and it probably will be until I'm out of ministry and um, off this earth but Just because it's one of the hot topics doesn't mean that that, or it's controversial doesn't mean that we need to dance around the idea that men and women are both of value to God. We can affirm that strongly. Now the distinction between them doesn't need to be a a, an area where we back up and say, men and women are equal, men and women are equal, but men are more equal than women. Okay, if we do that, then we've just negated the first statement. This is like George Orwell in Animal Farm, you know. Some animals are more equal than others. To affirm a distinction is not to say that one is better than the other. Just as we have many gifts in the church, and he's getting into that in chapter 12. One gift is not better than the others. Um, some, I always want to affirm that to people that just because someone is not up front preaching doesn't mean that they don't have gifts and the gift to preach is not better than any other gift all gifts matter and Paul will talk about this in his analogy with the body but at the same time we affirm those distinctions um, you know that at this church we've, we've uh, identified uh, some of our uh, female staff members as ministers well now is that controversial well I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Because I look around here, and I see a lot of men and women ministers. We are all supposed to be ministers. Uh, Peter writes in his letters that we are a a kingdom of priests, that we minister to one another. If, If I had my way, okay, there you go. This is dangerous. If I had my way, we'd do away with all titles and such and so forth and all that, and it's just like you're a minister, I'm a minister, we're all ministers. Let's just all minister. What are your gifts? Our gifts are whatever God gave us, and we're going to use them for the glory of the kingdom. There you go. But we like labels, and we like tags, and we like to know where people fall. Yeah. Are you this, or are you this? Are you this, or are you this? We shouldn't play the ranking game with ministries either. You've got to have this minister, and then that minister, and then another minister, and it all ranks. Um, we've also got a... Um, a you know, I think I can say this. Uh, he, he says it a lot, too. We have a youth minister that can get the senior citizen discount at Denny's, okay? And uh, so when people say, when are you going to grow up and stop being a youth minister? Well, that's, not, that's a wrong question to ask. Because it, it's, it's not something that you do. When, I, I ne- I've never been a youth minister. don't want to be, okay? Because that's not my calling. That's not my gift. So distinctions are not bad, and they don't indicate that someone is second class or unimportant. That's what sinfulness and culture will do in us. And we need to overcome that. Now, Paul's argument is one on the distinction. It's one from nature. So when he's talking about women's long hair, men's short hair, he says, look, you know, even nature kind of provides a a head covering. He says, you know, just notice the little distinctions. Men have beards, women don't. Those are generally true proverbial statements. And then he makes an argument from creation. And then he makes this bizarre statement. Um, That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Verse 10. What do the angels have to do with this? I'm going to give you two possible ways of understanding this. One might be right, one might be wrong. They both could be partially right, they could both be wrong. But I'm going to give you what we got. Um, in Paul's time, for about oh a hundred to two hundred years, the legends of the fallen angels were popular, and it gets put into a book called First Enoch. That's where it, now it, it, it had been around before First Enoch. You can go on the internet and you can find First Enoch. Um, it's really not thrilling reading. It says the same thing over and over again. It's a lot like Revelation has a lot of. Uh, uh, imagery in there, but Enoch, the seventh from Adam, is being called upon to uh, judge, you know, to, to uh, witness, just like John witnessed the revelation, he's being called upon to witness what God is doing, and God is going to judge those who rebel against his way of doing things, and among those are these angels, who are also known as the watchers, because they watched from heaven, and it all comes from that little verse in Genesis 6, The sons of God saw the daughters of men and that they were uh, good-looking and decided to take them as their wives, and their children were the giant ones, the great ones. That's a very ambiguous statement. It could mean anything from long time ago, the great people of the past saw the the women, they thought they were fair, they had children, and their, their children were the legends of old. Or, if you're predisposed, it could mean there were these angelic beings who thought human women are pretty good looking let's go take them for our wives and their children were these weird giants that were just all messed up because angels and humans shouldn't have children together Okay, and those ideas were out there just think of it as an ancient form of science fiction but those ideas were out there and 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 there is still this idea that gets carried over they're not so much worried about the fantasy dimension of it as much as what's happening in Enoch is, look, even when angels rebel against God's created order, there's going to be consequences, and God is going to judge that. The whole point of First Enoch is God will judge, and he will judge rightly, and he will judge fairly. Revelation's saying the same thing. You get caught up in the images and the details, you'll miss the big point. God's going to judge this. Revelation 18 this morning, the whole point was, people are going to find that the system that they've invested in, that they've put so much stock in, is going to come loose and it could all come crashing down in an hour. And if it does and when it does, God's going to judge it. And if you're invested in it and it's wrong, God's going to judge it and you'll be judged with it. So watch out. And, And Paul may be reminding them of this story that for some reason might have been really familiar to them. And he's saying, do you want to tempt the spiritual powers in other words show respect for these spiritual things he's already done that with the idol meat when he said you know some of the mature ones were saying oh there's nothing to idol meat I mean if I want to go in there and they've had uh, you know they got a chicken dinner and they've sacrificed all this to the the god Zeus you know I mean it's just a chicken dinner you know okay sure 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 Paul says I'm with you it's it's a lot of malarkey, superstition. He goes, then again, you really think it's a good idea to be hanging out in temples with pagan gods? That kind of thing's just not really a great idea. And maybe he's telling them that to disrupt things with their call for a spiritual freedom is, is really missing the point. Okay, we'll leave it there because more of this is going to come back as we get into the other chapters. But I know it's a—it might be a lot to chew on, and uh, there's so much more we could do with that. But I will tell you this: don't worry about wearing hats in worship. Okay, you're good. Don't worry if you got short hair. You're good. Okay, not a problem. Um, and. Um, if you're married, then, then y'all figure out that praying and prophesying thing, okay? And so, the, uh, but as for the rest of us, we'll just keep going here and we'll keep studying. Right now, we're going to sing this song. Um, if you want to partake of communion in room 100, that's ready. And then Blake Frost is going to lead us in a prayer and ask God to bless us and send us out. So let's stand, let's sing together.